Hey guys, Charlie here. And before we get into today's show, just a quick plug for Will's stand-up tour. That's right, Will Anderson is getting back on stage. So his shows at the Brunswick Picture House have been rescheduled and are now happening on February 18th and 19th. After that, if you're in South Australia, you can catch him at the Adelaide Fringe, February 24th to March 5th. And his brand new show, Willogical, will be part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival 2424 promotion, which means all tickets are $24 for a period of 24 hours. And that will be happening on Tuesday, February 1st. For more information, go to willanderson.com. And now, here's the show. The following episode of Fofop is rated MA. It contains alternating hosts, a rotating roster of guests, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15, or anyone who came here looking for one of those highbrow NPR-type podcasts. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deeg speaking. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Fofop. I'm Charlie Clawson and my guest this week is the Sultan of Cinema himself, Guy Davis, oh. returning for our recurring segment, The Video Store. I was trying to think up a good moniker for you. What do you think of the Sultan of Cinema? I'm very, very taken with that. I'm feeling most humbled and honoured. So so thank you, Charlie. Is it, not, is it culturally insensitive to refer to someone as a Sultan when they are, in fact, not from the Middle East? Do you think it is, in fact, appropriation? I don't know. What? What would be the Australian term, the, the bonza bloke of cinema? Well, it's got to be an alliteration to do with cinema or movies or flicks. So maybe the, um, the oh, I don't know, the, I was going to say the funny guy <laughs> of flicks, but it's not really like appropriate. What's uh, that, that would imp- imply that I'm actually funny. <laughs> the, so. the, the, the Ridgy Didge reviewer? Ooh. Oh, God. We're, we're getting closer. <laughs> and worse. Closer and worse. <laughs> which says a lot about Australian culture, really. Listeners, by all means, come up with a with a moniker for me, and uh, that all will be considered. Some will be stolen. <laughs> uh, so, guy, we uh, this is another idea of stolen from you. I like to um, sometimes take credit uh, for my ideas, but often with you, you come up with a better idea. So, you had the suggestion, the brilliant suggestion, that we should talk about date movies, um, mm. and so we decided that we'd talk about three good date movies and two date movies, two bad date movies. Um, we had a discussion off air <laughs> we'll see that it was a very complicated discussion shouldn't have been that hard uh, but uh, yes yeah, so uh, I uh, put together my list in a curated my list in a, in, a, in a I tried to view it from the point of view of I don't really go on dates anymore I've been happily married for you know almost 20 years and but so surely I'm, you have date night Charlie. yeah but if, if movies have taught me anything about married couples it's, you've got to have date night. yeah definitely have date nights but I think there is motive there's different motivations for a date movie isn't there like you know there's there the kind is. of want to impress you know I want to show a sensitive side want to get some action like there's all these different so I've tried to take the path of well these are engineered for different types of dates you know there's definitely like the date night for the long-term couple there's the first impression uh date night um and then there's maybe like a sounding out like i think that's also yeah. like a you know if you've on, been on a couple of dates and maybe you're not sure if you're aligned you'll take them to see one of your favorite directors or a genre of film that you're into and see how they react like i remember going on a date um and taking a girl to see multiplicity because i'm such a huge michael oh, yeah. keaton fan and she 
came out of it underwhelmed, understandably. I don't think it's one of his better films. Yes, yeah. But she uh, she was so critical of Michael Keaton that I was immediately realised oh. <laughs> this is going we, we are We are oil and water. If you're going to feel this way about Mr. Keaton. I mean, how can you go wrong? There was five of them. Like, how could that be anything but a good thing? <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, I was thinking about um, a quote from – Noted ladies' man and womanizer Quentin Tarantino, who uh, said, I think one of his first dates that he would take a girl out on was, or maybe not even go out, I think he would sort of invite her over to his place and say, we're going to watch Rio Bravo, the Western <laughs> Rio Bravo. And if you don't like it, well, it's we're clearly not meant to be. So, uh, And if you do like it, you can expect to have your toes sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I do admire a man who's very upfront about you know what he's into. Well, if he wasn't upfront, I think everyone would have figured it out by now. He doesn't make it. He doesn't make it subtle. That's true. That's true. So, uh, but w- what you said is actually bang on in terms of uh, what sort of categorization or what designation these date movies have. I mean, whether they're an indication about this is my taste and mm. this will prove that we've got some degree of compatibility mm. or you're trying to get someone in the mood or you're trying to show someone you've got your game face on your artistic game yeah face you're trying to impress them i'm very much into this uh film by the uh, japanese filmmaker ozu and well that might tell you a little something about me <laughs> <laughs> he says he's never having watched an ozu movie in his life well the one thing i never understood as a teenager when you know we me and my mates first started sort of being interested in girls and you know meeting up with girls and going to see movies and stuff is like my friends were always like oh it's great when you go to the movie because that's when you get to like make out and stuff but i was such a nerd that i was like but but then I'll miss the movie. movie. <laughs> I'm not going to go see T2 and like make out with some girl and I can watch Robert Patrick turn into any object. <laughs> I am thoroughly amazed. But actually, no, that's, that's true. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I paid good money for this movie and yes, I'm wholly expecting to see uh, you know, Arnold and Edward Furlong Bond here. Yeah. We can make out after the movie. Yeah, Child and Machine. He's going to become the father figure that he always needed. <laughs> At which point I'm told, ask the La Vista baby and never see this girl again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you kick things off with your first uh, good date movie? Well, I was thinking about this the other night because uh, I decided to watch after a long time of not having seen it. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola, you know, let, let's get very long-winded here, mm. Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> with, with, with all due respect to Francis Ford Coppola, because he, he tends to respect the author of stuff. I mean, if you look back at The Godfather, it's actually billed as Mario Puzo's The Godfather. He even, give, he even gave John Grisham his props when he made The Rainmaker. He didn't just call it The Rainmaker, it was John Grisham's The Rainmaker. Do you think he maybe so, got a bit of, uh, he was trying to get on some of that John Carpenter action, where it's like, well, Carpenter's <laughs> been doing it for 15 years, I'm going to chuck my name on this. <laughs> so when it was time to actually film Dracula and, you know, be one of the many, many people who's brought it to the screen... So, well, no, let's give that uh, that uh, crazy Irishman his props and call it Bram Stoker's Dracula as opposed to just plain old Dracula. It, it had been a good few years, maybe a decade or so since I'd seen it, but it was the 4K disc was on sale at JB. Oh, beautiful. And, you know, um, so I thought, well, I'll snap this up and, uh, you know, enjoy all the vibrancy mm. that Mr. Coppola brought to the screen. And looking at it, it was like, 
Well, first of all, yeah, this is a wild movie. Mm. I mean, this is just an incredible, sumptuous visual feast in so many ways. Mm. Cinematography, production design, costume design is nuts. Yeah. Uh, but one thing that I thought about it is this movie is unabashedly horny. Oh, it's so horny. It really <laughs> in a way is. That, in a way that 21st century movies are not. <laughs> I, it, I it was came out at a time when I was sort of really just becoming like getting into cinema seriously, like you know starting to go and research certain directors and actors and stuff. And I remember going to see this because it was a it was a big movie at the time as well. It was sort of back, you know, you, you had sort of the darling of kind of indie cinema, Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves, you know, who's coming off the back of like Bill and Ted's and Point Break. So that was my awareness of it. But I remember going into seeing it and just being baffled because it was almost an art piece really like packaged as a mainstream kind of MGM you know old school horror movie but much more artistic than that even from the design of Gary Oldman through to the weird sort of crossfades and voiceovers and stuff it's all very airy fairy but you're right I do remember also feeling like what's going on here (laughs) like there was a scene where (laughs) Winona Ryder hugs um, throws her arms around Gary Oldman and she's in this sheer nightdress and she's sort of backlit. Mm. And my 14-year-old brain just kind of exploded at the hint <laughs> of the female form. And I remember I went and told all my friends, oh, you've got to go see Dracula. It's so sexy. It's so sexy. And I went to see it for a second time. And my friends who were more expecting sort of basic instinct, Verhoeven, you know, representation yeah. of sexy, not kind of high-minded, you know, erotica, <laughs> were just so <laughs> angry at me that I dragged them to this, what they thought was a very boring old person film. Well, that's true. I mean, it's a very sort of operatic mm. kind of romance. But at the same time, yeah, looking at it, it's like there's a lot of women in nightgowns running through rainstorms. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, a lot of people who can barely seem to keep their hands off one another. Admittedly, it is you know, sort of early 90s we, uh, Keanu and Winona, so who could blame them for sort of yeah. not wanting to get up close and personal? But, yeah, it just... And then... you. Throw that in, I mean, throw in also the uh, Dracula's Brides, one of them who's played by Monica Bellucci. It's like, good Lord, is this that is right? Just... I did not know that. <laughs> so I'm looking at this going, I, I, I think I was a bit of a nerdy young man who didn't take a date to see this. <laughs> I, I remember seeing it at a late night screening down here in Geelong and uh, immediately sort of going, <laughs> going out and hitting the pubs and clubs thinking, I'd like to sort of, Maybe use some of that Dracula magic. <laughs> see me. Try it. You're just standing in the corner, creepily see me. <laughs> it, it's, it's very much so. Well, a couple of years later, I mean, uh, the movie Ed Wood came out, the mm. fantastic uh, Tim Burton movie, Ed Wood. And Bella Lugosi, played by Martin Landau in that movie, said something very, very accurate when he's talking to uh, Johnny Depp's Ed. He's saying, if you want to get the young lady in the mood, they got to see Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at this one, re-watching this one, I'm like, I should really show this to my partner, the lovely Louise, see what she thinks. <laughs> I wonder too, like, if if it was maybe I was at a too young a demographic for what it was targeted at, because like I said, it is erotic and it is sort of, you know, it's very sexual, uh, but it is a sophisticated kind of erotica. It's more of the burlesque hint of sex than it is more, you know, the, like I said, the Verhoeven explicit. I also think too that, you know, 
uh, vampires as a, a genre of film because of the nature of blood sucking and fluids and all kind of that. Like you cannot avoid, well, I guess I was going to say you can't avoid the sexy, but then Twilight and Underworld managed to do that. <laughs> Suck all the sexy <laughs> out of vampires, no pun intended. Uh, but it, 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 do, it, it does have this kind of, it's like a fine wine or a beautiful piece of art. You know, it's, it's, it really does... I, I think in the age of the internet and being able to see anything at the click of a button, we've sort of lost the art of the tease, you know, that kind of like suggestion of just like inflamed passions and need and, and yearning. Very much so. I think there's been some sort of a bad sense of compartmentalization has gone on when it comes to eroticism in cinema or eroticism on a screen at least. Mm. I think you, not to say that, oh, kids these days, but I think there's this... Uh, mindset that if you want to be turned on that's what porn's for yeah essentially yeah, yeah. if you want sexual thrills on screen you go straight just, you know, to the go, go watch some porn yeah, yeah. I mean, and if you're watching a movie with a narrative or a movie with actors that you recognize or a, a mainstream production it really shouldn't have sexiness in it it's like yeah well it feels a bit yeah, awkward it's, it's not, it, it feels awkward now yeah. you're right it's compartmentalized like if you're watching a mainstream film and it's a super famous actor you know, actor or actress these days. I've just been watching the uh, Pam and Tommy series on um, on Disney, and that that's full frontal male and female. And it is it is funny where you're just like, oh, like you know, it's a, back in the day, it was kind of like you know, there were certain actresses that you could go, all right, well, there's a seventy to eighty percent possibility I might mm. see some flesh if I go and see this film, or certain directors. You know, there was the Zalman King uh, kind of era oh, of, the, yeah. of the late eighties, the Two Moon Junction and the Red Shoe Diaries and all that kind of stuff. But it it's funny, it has been separated, and I just wonder if we'll ever get back to that like i know there's been some more experimental art house films that have brought in like explicit sex scenes or hardcore sex scenes into into what are ostensibly dramas but i wonder if we can go back to that 70s era where it's you know or that yeah. early 80s where it's like we're really treading that line between the two we're getting big name actors and highly erotic stories well even the 90s period I, mean, oh, yeah. I think one of the heads of content at amazon said in an interview, it's like, I really miss those erotic thrills that came out in the early 90s, like like Basic Instinct, as you mentioned, but and everything that sort of followed on from that. And they're saying, we'd like to try and maybe make some of those. And I think they did. They, they had a spin at it with a movie called The Voyeurs mm. that's on Amazon Prime, starring this young actress named um, Sydney Sweeney, who's also on the, on the show Euphoria, who, forgive me for being crude, but occasionally sort of shows a bit of flesh mm. and um, has become a bit of a, I was about to say role model, that's not exactly the right term, but uh, poster Sex child for screen nudity these days. Right. And, um, I don't know what the response was to it. I mean, I don't think it was, it was probably, quality-wise, it was probably more like Jade than, say, Basic Instinct. But uh, it's also a movie where you had hot-looking people in good shape taking their clothes off and getting intimate and... Well, I guess Fifty Shades yeah. is the that's Fifty the, Shades. Were, yeah, that's that the was standout the, of the most recent example. The most yeah. mainstream, but I mean, I haven't seen any of them, so I can't comment. Yeah. But my understanding was it was fairly tame and awkward. <laughs> it wasn't kind particularly of was, erotic. Yeah, yeah, it's got a, a very American view of erotica, or yeah. a very sort of twenty first century American view of erotica. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, God bless Dakota Johnson for you know going for it as as much as she did, but at the same time, it's like. It's, it's quote-unquote sexy as opposed to actually sexy. 
All right. My first film is uh, one of those ones I was talking about, which this is a this is a a, a, a testing ground film for me, where mm-hmm. um, you know there was several uh, girls that I have dated where I've put this on to see what the reaction is because. I um, always thought of this film as being a comedy classic. I just assumed that it was in the pantheon of comedy classics. And then having done my research, I realized it's very kind of lukewarm reception to the film. It's Honeymoon in Vegas, a 1992 film uh, starring Nicolas Cage, Sarah Jessica Parker and James Kahn. A screwball mm. comedy, a farce uh, about a, 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 a private investigator who uh, loses a big hand of poker to James Kahn, who's a, a gangster and um, offers up his girlfriend for a weekend. Uh, well, doesn't offer up. Yeah, the, the, the gangster has designs on his girlfriend and says, if you let me take her away for a weekend, I'll cancel your debt. And he does that and then ends up pursuing her to Vegas. So uh, 1992 is a really interesting period for Nicolas Cage because we're yeah. kind of post or at the tail end of kind of goofy Cage coming into serious Cage on the way to movie star Cage. And it's really fascinating because, like I said, it is a screwball comedy. It's a you know just filled with kind of ridiculous characters and situations, almost like a a Farrelly Brothers film, but with less kind of toilet humor. But he is Nicholas Cage is approaching it with all the aplomb of like you know a Christian Bale. You know, like he is treating each of these situations so seriously. There's the classic scene that most people, even who aren't fans of the film, know is the airport scene where he's waiting in line. Uh, while the guy from Ferris Bueller's a Bueller, Bueller, Bueller actor, <laughs> is taking his time and he runs up and abuses the guy and the stewardess and stuff. And there's two things about the scene which strike me. A, it's fucking hilarious and Nicolas Cage is so funny. But, boy, imagine doing that in an airport now, <laughs> like running to the front of the line and yelling yelling at the at the stewardess and yelling at the customers. You'd just be – and there's, the, the end line is, what are you going to do, throw me in airport jail? And I watched it recently, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> they're going to yes. throw you in jail. They have holding rooms <laughs> in airports now. Um, but uh, uh, there's a, a few other things that I love about this film is that it's filled with amazing character actors. Like, it's not just um, uh, uh, it's not just Nicolas Cage and Sarah Jessica Parker and James Caan. You've got Peter Boyle. You've got Pat Morita, Mr. Miyagi. Um, oh, wow. Uh, you've got Anne Bancroft playing Nicolas Cage's mother. They do a classic uh, intro. It's a deathbed scene where she's like, promise me you'll never get married. So that's why uh, Nicolas Cage has the aversion to get married. And then there's an actor who I have seen in so many things and I couldn't work out where I knew him. His name is Robert Costanza. Do you know who that is? I th- I believe I remember him from Die Hard 2. He was... Um, the cabbie. Because Den- yeah, No, no. Um, no? He might... Is he a cop in it? Because Dennis Franz is the airport cop in oh, airport, he might in Die Hard 2. Hey, I'll give you, one, I'll give you a yeah. role you'll definitely know. He plays Arnold Schwarzenegger's best friend in Total Recall, the guy who works in when the work site he oh, turns out. Don't go to recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That guy. He looks like I, a, I had a buddy who went there that lobotomized them. Yeah, he's buff. <laughs> he's buff Danny DeVito. So oh, <laughs> he plays a guy in the film. It's a running joke that he thinks his wife is having an affair with Mike Tyson because Nicolas Cage is a private investigator. So he keeps bringing him obviously doctored photos of his wife with someone has cut out Mike Tyson's head and stuck it on. And it is so stupid, but it just makes me laugh so much. It also features the first ever. Um, appearance by Bruno Mars anywhere. And because they have a running joke where they get to Las Vegas and there's an Elvis convention happening. So that's another running gag is you just got all these different Elvises of different shapes and sizes and ethnicities. 
But there's just a cutaway where you see this little three-year-old singing Elvis, and it's fucking Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars. <laughs> yeah, his first <laughs> screen credit. Um, uh, well, of course, uh, Cage was, playing, was probably, I mean, I think he's a long-time and probably lifelong Elvis fan. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's not far off um, well, I wonder his, if, his role in Wild at Heart where he was doing oh, a, a fair course. bit of Elvis as well. So. Yeah, and then went on to marry Lisa Marie, of course. That man just follows his bliss wherever, <laughs> where, whichever direction it may go, isn't it? But, uh, yeah, look, I tell you what, I mean, nothing makes me happier than the idea. It seems like there might be a bit of a Nicolas Cage renaissance happening mm. now, you know, after Pig. And I don't know what this new meta film is like, but the trailer kind of made me chuckle. Have you seen it? I've seen the trailer right. yeah, for what's it, Unspeakable Weight of Massive Talent or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, something Very like sort that. Of Nicholas, played, Nicholas Cage plays Nicholas Cage. I've yet to see Pig. I really want to. I've sort of got it on standby here. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, just, I, I know a lot of younger actors that I've worked with, they dismissed Nicholas Cage. Like they only know him for being like Conair onto straight to video guy. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like this guy was like the most exciting thing in cinema for a, a long, long time, and can pretty much do anything. Do anything. Well, um, yeah. I mean, in this in this period of the nineties, I mean, he's not just Nicolas Cage action star as he sort of became from maybe. There's no way you would see onwards. him in this film and imagine where he would go next. <laughs> like the fact yeah, that it was yeah, like less than ten years later slotted, doing Con Air. Yeah. They're slotting him into romantic comedies because he did this. He did one with Bridget Fonda called It Could Happen to You. With the same, that thing same called, director? Yeah, called Guarding Tess with Shirley MacLaine where he played this very straight-laced right. uh, secret servant agent guarding the first lady. At the same time, he's doing you know, really hardcore dramas like Leaving Las Vegas. He won the Oscar for that one. And I don't know if he did any action movies sort of prior to The Rock, but... Uh, would you say Red, so Red Rock West is maybe well, – it's more of a kind of crime thriller. More of a neo-noir, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, th- that was definitely his kind of stepping into that kind of Michael Bay-ish, you know, mm. Bruckheimer world. I mean, I do I love that sort of period of Con Air where, uh, you know, you had that cast with Malkovich and Cusack and stuff and – like, it's through gritted teeth, you can, apart from Cage, but the rest of them, like Buscemi, it's almost through gritted teeth that they're doing it. Like, hmm. maybe not Malkovich. I get the feeling that Malkovich is like, fuck, you know, he, it doesn't bother him. He's an actor. He'll just turn up. And But John Cusack, who was still like the darling of indie cinema. Yeah. And I think I even read interviews at the time where he came out and bitched about having done it. And I'm always like, you can't have it both ways. You fucking, if you take the paycheck, you've got to embrace the genre. Don't take the paycheck and then complain about what you're fucking signing up for. Yeah. And I mean, the the glory of Cage is he was able to bring all his cageness to these productions. And it felt authentic, but it also felt very much in keeping with, with these movies as well. Yeah. I mean, you look at what he's doing in The Rock, it's like, okay, no, he's actually committing to the action stuff, but he's, just doing a bunch of weird business as well. Yeah. Likewise in Face Off, likewise in... Um, well, even the choice in, in Con Air to, to have that hair and that accent. Like yep. again, that. again, the Elvis kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's just so kind yeah, of weird. So, um, <laughs> well, but, but, he's, but he's utterly convincing and utterly charming in this low-key way in Honeymoon in Vegas and in Could Happen to You and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, I, I think yeah, also, too, the thing that makes the whole conceit of the film work. And I don't even know if you could even do it now because it's, you know, it's probably not the greatest representation of like a healthy it, it, relationship. It's hilarious though that, that 
I don't know when Indecent Proposal came out, but they're basically the same movie, but with different sort of uh, different, different approaches to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, Honeymoon it, in Vegas is taking more the, the comedic approach and Indecent Proposal is actually trying to play it straight, which is... I think the thing that unwise. really <laughs> makes it work is actually Sarah Jessica Parker. Because, mm. A, she has, is so adorable in this film. Like, she's so likeable. And it's in a, in a strange way, because it is written as a kind of a passive character, but she manages to inject quite a bit of agency into it. And she's funny. Like, she's really, really funny. And she's almost playing, like, the straight man role. Because you've got these two ridiculous cartoonish men in, in James Kahn and Nicolas Cage. And then she's almost like, you know, uh, uh, the straight man or the, the, the Luke Wilson in old school character who's just like, what? Yeah. What? Like, in every scene. <laughs> but, yeah, you can understand, too, why these two men have fallen in love with her. It's a bit like... Um, uh, there's something about Mary. Like the, the casting of Mary has to be so mm. spot on to justify all the ridiculousness, ridiculousness that goes that on happens, around it. Yeah. And I think they nailed it in this one. Now, Sarah Jessica Parker had a really great run in the early 90s as well with movies like that. She's in uh, the Steve Martin movie, L.A. Story. L.A. Story, she's this, fantastic. Uh, yeah, playing this uh, young aspiring actress who, I don't know how Steve Martin sort of hooks up with her, but... Goes into her she, shoe store, isn't it? Buys shoes from her. Something like that, yeah. But she spells her name Sandy, like with you know, <laughs> a capital letter in the middle and a little yeah. asterisk at the end, and actually kind of sells it that she's this, she's a ditz but adorable with it. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, she's always had terrific uh, screen presence and terrific comedy chops, Eric Jessica Parker. Pretty, you know, pretty much from the first time I remember seeing her on screen, like in something I caught her in a couple of movies in the late eighties, like. There was one called Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Oh, yeah, we know that. Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Yeah. It's her and Helen Hunt, actually. Yeah, I know. Young Helen Hunt. Helen Hunt riding a chariot in the uh, in the final scene. Yeah. <laughs> Rides on the stage in a chariot. It's, um, so, okay, but, but Honeymoon in Vegas, what? didn't? Uh, have you shown it to various people and they're kind of like, eh, not sure about this? Oh, no. I, the, like, you know, Jem, Jem loves Honeymoon in Vegas and um, I have had some positive, but it's not... I have always thought of it like a something about Mary, like a kind of real benchmark yeah. film of the like a, a great screwball comedy of the early 1990s. But it's only when I went online that was my own perspective. It was when I went into IMDb and Metacritic and stuff. I'm like, oh, like it's not even rating above a five on any of these kind of aggregate sites. And I was, I just was amazed because I have such fond memories of it. It has been a while since I saw it, but. Uh, before we did this, uh, we recorded today. I watched a whole bunch of clips, and I was like, "No, this is still funny. Like, it's still yeah. making me laugh." <laughs> it's funny. I, th- I think there might be a phase that movies go through that a lot of things go through. That may a lot of art, maybe a lot of artists go through, where they have to have maybe a five or ten year period where it's like, oh, "Did we really like that all that much?" Or this this actor was someone we really liked a whole lot, and then. If they make it through that period relatively unscathed, you start to get reappraised. It's like, oh, no, we actually like you. Yeah. Well, Keanu you know, we'll is start- Keanu's having that now. I mean, I know he's a megastar, but like mm. the appreciation for Keanu and the way people flock to his defence after that journalist wrote that, <laughs> that hit piece on him last year. I mean, we oh, did that's two right. episodes of GoFop defending Keanu Reeves. But I think you're right. Like even Arnie, you know, uh, was a joke. And then people started yeah. to go, but I mean – I don't think you're a, a huge movie star by accident, you know, oh, especially not. over the, a period of 20 years. If you've been famous for longer than 20 years, then you have some level of charisma or you deliver something that people like. I mean, yes, yeah. you know, to go back to Bram Stoker's Dracula, Keanu is a limited, limited actor, but mm. 
He's fucking gorgeous. <laughs> you know? Oh, absolutely. Especially in that era. <laughs> well, even Bram Stoker's Dracula, I mean, I think went through a phase where it's like, oh, this movie's a bit, uh, it's, got, it's got some terrible acting in it. It's a bit overheated. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then you go back and realise, oh, no, no, there's actual artistry in this. And okay, yeah. Well, but, yeah, Keanu does kind of suck in it. But do you we'll, ever we'll wonder, let that slide. Do you ever wonder if, in regards to that, like, because I often think about, you know, Roger Corman films were dismissed at the time as just being trash and junk. And then now he's revered and, you know, not only for giving mm. a start to so many filmmakers, but people go, no, there's actual artistry in those films that they released. Yeah. Do you think people will look back in 20 years on Yui Bowl and go, well, look, you know, he was fighting the system. He was a true independent filmmaker. He had this anarchist spirit. Quite possibly. There's a documentary about Uwe Boll where, he, you know, the guy's just completely uncompromising in terms of like, oh, yeah, some of these movies I made for money. Most of these movies I made for money. But, you know, <laughs> you don't like them, fuck you. You don't have to watch them. <laughs> and apparently he's like a, a restaurateur and... Um, yeah, he's given up. Yeah, in, in Canada, but like a really well-respected one. You know, yeah. People sort of come from all over Canada and all over North America to go check out his restaurant. He's got a like a terrific wine list and really good taste in this regard. Got great taste in food and wine, terrible taste in making films. <laughs> speaking <laughs> speaking of I, doing but, things for money, sorry, just to, uh, that's the one other thing I'd say about Honeymoon in Vegas is it strikes me as one of those films where clearly a motivation to sign on to this was the fact that it looks like it was like a three-month holiday in both Hawaii and Las Vegas. <laughs> like there's, you could just the imagine that as soon as they wrapped they were hitting the craps tables, or they were going to the beach, or you know, uh, just you know, doing doing a hula hula class or something. The call it the Sandler principle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. I think like so many of his uh, of his later movies, I mean, uh, like, hey, do you want to come to Europe? We're going to uh, shoot this movie called Murder Mystery, but we're going to you know film it on the Amalfi Coast and yeah, and maybe well, on <laughs> yeah, we'll do we'll go we'll set it with the, for the first take. Just wear your own clothes; it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just rewinding a little Sorry. bit to sort of viewing things with uh, you know with uh, a pleasant bit of hindsight. It's one of my favourite lines from Raiders of the Lost Ark, where um, Belloc meets Indy at that uh, at that cafe, and he says, "Look at this cheap watch. I paid ten bucks for it. You know, from a vendor on the street. I'm going to take it out to the desert." bury it for a thousand years and when I dig it up it'll be priceless. Mm. You can say that about a lot of art as well. I mean, I see people reevaluating like that Jean-Claude Van Damme Street Fighter movie. It's mm. like, wow, what a great, you know, classic of the 1990s. Like, no, it, it's shit. It's, it's not me shit. Yeah. <laughs> Batman and Robin was actually good. And it's like, fuck off. Someone tried that on Twitter the other day. They actually tried to relitigate uh, Batman and Robin. I've seen a few. There's been, there's a quite a few YouTubers who have made essays. And, and I can understand from the perspective of, oh, if you were trying to make something super shit, then it's a masterpiece, but it's still shit. <laughs> Although maybe they're looking at, you know, the Nolan Batmans and even the Zack Snyder ones, and now the Robert Pattinson ones, like, well, they're all a bit grim, aren't they? You know, it would yeah. be nice if, you know, you actually had a bit of sock, pow. Yeah, exactly. Wham, with Batman again. <laughs> all right, what's your next, oh, no, sorry, what's your first bad date movie we're going to bad date movies now yeah i must confess i've not actually tried to inflict this on a date okay but uh, this is a purely hypothetical okay Lay scenario but I, I get the feeling it wouldn't end well if you were trying to impress or even try to seduce um a potential partner 
because horror horror is a bit of a dicey genre. Mm. I mean, despite what we just said about uh, you know, if you want to get your lady in the mood, they could see Dracula. Not every horror movie is going to play the same way. I mean, no. a, a good little chiller like a John like John Carpenter's Halloween. Or something that ma- draws a yeah. gasp and maybe like that, you know, like they throw their arms yeah. around you or something like that, as opposed yeah. to hostel. Oh, you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or even like, you know, like Sam Raimi's Evil Dead or something yeah, it's like that. It's a bit intense. That's a bit much. Yeah. And I'm thinking of the two films released so far by uh, an American filmmaker named Ari Aster. He made Hereditary. And his second film was called Midsummer, or I, I think it's called Midsummer. It's got a, it doesn't, it's not spelled Midsummer. It's got a right. very sort of Scandinavian style spelling. Uh, and I've only seen it a couple of times, and it's it's a commitment. I think it's something like two and a half hours long, and yeah. you know it's very slow paced, and occasionally have these bursts of extreme violence or mm. yeah you know, something extremely confronting. But not just that. I mean, the, the thing about Midsommar, the, the, the basic plot is you have this young couple, they're both at college. He's sort of pulling away a bit, and she, if you wanted to be uncharitable, seems kind of needy. Now, admittedly, she's got her reasons, as you find out in the opening scene. I won't spoil it for anyone, but uh, something very, very terrible happens to her family. She's you know dealing with it as best she can. He's about to go on a trip with his bros to... Um, Sweden or Switzerland, but some sort of cultural getaway that he's going to use as um, you know, research for his, his uh, PhD or something like that. And he's like, well, I can't just leave my girlfriend here in America after all this has happened. She's, guys, can she come with us? Is it all right, bros? And they're like, she's a bit of a downer dude, but okay. <laughs> um, they, they go to this, uh, this festival, this... I don't know exactly how you Pagan, describe it. Like a like a it's sort of like a it's sort of like a hippie. I don't know. Like it's yeah. sort of a communal experience. Living. That's it. Yes, communal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Strange shit happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, cultish, cultish, cultish business happens. Yeah. But by the end of it, I don't know. I think you're either looking and going, "Wow, they really did the boyfriend dirty," or. Good for this girl. <laughs> so I think you'd have a lot of spirited discussions coming out of it. Now, depending on how you want this uh, date or this potential relationship to sort of uh, progress, that may be a good thing. I mean, a good spirited discussion about gender roles and relationships and romance and all that kind of stuff could be a very, very good thing. But it could also be, I've read a lot of reports of couples coming out of Midsommar just basically screaming at each other, that guy sucked. No, they that was just bad, and yeah, ba- potentially a lot of breakups. So I don't think you really want to start with this kind of movie. Yeah, Unless, it kind, it, it's kind think- of it's kind of almost the anti-romance film because if you have any lingering doubts about your partner or your communication levels aren't what they should be, <laughs> this is a film that sort of reinforces that disconnect. And it's kind of uh, what it does so well is it's so beautifully shot, and it's like. The, the 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 commune they go to itself it's quite alluring and intoxicating yeah. and you get sort of lulled into this kind of um strange false, kind false of false sense, sense of, of security yeah yeah and then it starts going horribly wrong and <laughs> it really it's it gets under your skin like i think you're right it would be a terrible date movie because it does speak to 
um, you know, the paranoias that we have in relationships and how well do you know your partner and what are their actual motivations. And there's also just a general sense of unease. So just the actual yeah. physical experience. I saw this film um, when Gemma was about to give birth. It was like one of the last films we saw wow. in the cinema. And I remember we were both like, ooh, you know, <laughs> when we're meant to be in a state of like sort of just calm and relaxed, we both walked away feeling like, oh, okay, well, that's, uh, you know, <laughs> that wasn't maybe the, the lasting impression of cinema we want to take into the birthing suite. <laughs> yeah. I think horror movies that instill dread like yeah. that are, yeah, not really conducive to, yeah, romance or affection or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I'm a big fan of like David Cronenberg, for instance, mm. and I always joked like, you know, I'd love to meet a girl who's kind of turned on by Videodrome or Crash, <laughs> but then at the same time, if I actually met one, she'd probably be just way above my pay grade. <laughs> who loves who loves body horror? Swipe left. <laughs> uh, now, my uh, first bad date film, both my bad date films are going to be more um, uh, recountings of bad dating experiences. Mm. So I don't actually know if they are bad date movies, but I had a bad date during them, and I'm going to blame the movie for that. <laughs> as opposed uh, to yourself. The first one um, is probably no surprise uh, as a bad film for a date. It's uh, David Fincher's Seven. Um, and look, everyone knows what Seven's about. Uh, detectives Mills and Somerset are on the hunt for a serial killer who's uh, simply murdering people according to the Seven Deadly Sins. One of the great high concept concepts of all time. Isn't 100%. It? Like, I, there's, I'm always surprised there's a little discussion around how Saw just were like, you know, Lee Winnell and, and James Warren were just like, well, we're just going to make a sequel to Seven. <laughs> we're just going to take the same... <laughs> character essentially and just turn and just and just rename him mm. um in probably one of the most uh, created a genre in itself or, or revitalize a serial killer genre um especially stylistically like i was working in the video store when this came out and the amount of knockoffs like i think there was one with christopher lambert called resurrection oh yeah uh, directed where, by australia's own russell mulcahy yeah, yeah. Well, well russell really scooped the pool when it came to seven knockoffs <laughs> it's like we want a music video director but one we can afford Everything was sepia-toned <laughs> after that. Um, so there's a few things uh, about this film that make it, it – it's very similar to Midsummer in that it's a generally unsettling experience. It's almost a bit of a – it's hard to sort of think back now because the film is so well-known and the twists are so mm -hmm. well-known. that. But to see it for the first time, to, um, you know, uh, to have Nine Inch Nails closer play, you know, mm -hmm. with the – creating that diary with that jagged sort of editing style, like it puts you on edge straight away. It's also one of the grime, most grimy – films it in really history is. it's just everything's fucking grimy and and and, and damp brain soaked and yeah brain soaked yeah. and just gross like there must be so many so much tinnier in whatever fictional city <laughs> mills and somerset operate out of but uh so the personal side to the story was i was on a date with a girl that i i really really liked and um I had sort of heard about it, but I didn't know how full on it was going to be. It was like a thriller. And she was like, oh, I love Brad Pitt because she's a woman. I love Brad Pitt. And I'm like, perfect. We'll go see, you know, this Brad Pitt. Maybe he'll take his shirt off. He, he's known for doing that. Maybe he'll take his shirt off and this will work in my favor. So the film starts and I'm immediately like, oh, shit. Like this, is, this seems a lot more intense than what I was expecting. And she was not a girl uh, that was handling horror very well. Like... Um, I, I think it was uh, uh, we uh, the scene with uh, is it David Strathan is the the the, the poor John who gets 
um, he has to strap on the, the no, razor blade. No, uh, yeah, it's an actor named Leland Orsa. Oh, Leland Orsa, right, which yeah. is one of the most traumatic scenes it I can really remember. really is, and that guy just acts the absolute hell acts out of it. the but- shit out of it. So, in the interview room scene where, so you've seen him like with a blanket over his lap and he's, you know, he's doing the shaky acting, he's talking about <laughs> it. I can see the girl is not enjoying it, but I can also feel something on my leg and I'm like, what the fuck? And so I'm trying to kind of discreetly like feel around because I can feel something and it feels like it's moving up my leg, the leg of my pants. And I don't want to reach down my pants, obviously. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so there is some kind of insect or creature inside my pants. And so I reach down through the bottom cuff of my pants and reach up to around about my knee and pull out the biggest fucking huntsman I have ever seen. Jesus, Charlie. She fucking screams. I scream. I toss the huntsman across the cinema. So some poor punter who's got like a spider in the back of their head right in the middle of this fucking scene. <laughs> and that, and it was just downhill from there. Like we endured the rest of the film. Like to be honest, after that, Gwyneth's head in a box is a bit of a relief. <laughs> like the film took a, was a real upside. But uh, yes, that was the last date we went on, and uh, oh, I, 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 I blame I blame Seven for that. Justifiably so. <laughs> Although the spider did uh, sound like it uh, played its role in the uh, in the crash and burn of that relationship before it even got rolling. I felt much the same way about Seven. I, I actually saw it by myself in pretty much like a deserted cinema. I had a mild oh. hangover as well. Oh, God. And I went in expecting, oh, it's going to be like a cool procedural. Action. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah, I wasn't expecting an action movie, but I was expecting like, oh, it's going to be a thriller. Yeah. You know, I'd, seen, I'd seen the trailer and thought, oh, this looks pretty slick. And, you know, I like Brad Pitt. I like Morgan Freeman, both good actors. And I really wasn't expecting just the bone-deep kind of sadness. That's yeah. It. It's a... It's just a really, it's a downer of a movie. Man. It's a real it's, fucking it's downer. It's so good, but it's so bad and sad. Yeah, yeah it, it takes such a bleak view of humanity. I mean, it's a, yeah. in a lot of ways, there's some similar similarities to um, the first series of True Detective in that nihilism. Mm. You know, yeah, there is this a- sense that, you know, the world is, is irredeemable and unsavable and... I still think, though, I know there's a moral, it's like a moral dilemma at the end, but I still think Brad did the right thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I think there's nothing wrong with a bit of wrath when someone Absolutely, cuts your partner's head off. But it's such an ingenious twist by Andrew Kevin Walker. By, by Kevin Spacey, who we right. know as just, you know, right. a real life villain. But um, yeah. Yeah, there's a, yeah for, I should add for that. Him it's to nothing be, wrong yeah. with shooting Kevin Spacey in the head either. <laughs> Everyone's going, it's a happy ending. Kevin Spacey yeah. got shot. <laughs> but um, for, for him to make himself the last deadly sin, it's like, mm. oh, wow. Oh, this is so well played. Yeah. And so watching it, I was like, I am just in awe of the craftsmanship here, of Finch's direction, of Andrew Kevin mm. Walker's scripting, of the performances by all involved. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm just walking out of this going, I just feel so bad. Yeah. <laughs> so I can it's, only it, imagine seeing it with a date. With a, Yeah, with a spider up your pants. <laughs> <laughs> and a spider in your pants. All right, let's get back to some uh, happier date movies. Uh, what is your next good date movie? Uh, let's go... Um, let's talk about... An aspirational date movie, shall okay. we say. Yeah, I'm, I want to give the impression that I'm a, uh, a man of taste, culture, sophistication. Back in the 80s, if you wanted to appear as such, if you weren't, you know, 
a um, a sporty type or a, a, a big man on campus type. You had to go for something else. So you really needed three things. You need a black turtleneck. You needed a, you need a pair a, a, a packet of jetanes, and you needed two tickets to a matinee of Diva. <laughs> um, the uh, I don't know if it was the first film by the late Jean Jacques Benny, or I believe that's how you pronounce it. I actually spent a little time on YouTube saying, how do I pronounce this guy's name? Jean-Jacques Benix, I believe. <laughs> uh, he's also responsible for the movie Betty Blue. Oh, which, um, right. Yeah, you couldn't have uh, a, a dorm room or a, or a, uh, a pretentious kid's or a pretentious teenager's bedroom, bedroom in the late 80s, yeah. early 90s without a Betty Blue poster on it. Correct. But Betty Blue might be a bit too raunchy for a first date because it does open with some, well, can we swear on this podcast, Charlie? Of course you can. It opens with some fairly hardcore fucking. <laughs> <laughs> not, not hardcore as in hardcore porn, but for, it earned its R rating, shall we say. So yeah. that might set a precedent that, uh, that might be right. <laughs> that might be writing checks your butt can't cash. So let's mm. go with Diva instead, which is... A delightful uh, caper, caper comedy, caper thriller set in Paris. Uh, the gist of it is, this movie's so cool, it makes the job of Parisian mailman just look as, downright aspirational, positively cool. Right, the James you know, Bond of France. <laughs> but he's a mailman, and, but he's also an opera fan, and he has made a bootleg recording of this American opera singer who has vowed never to have her voice put on, on a recording but he's made a bootleg of it. The tape of that gets mixed up with another tape, which incriminates a corrupt cop. People are on the trail of that one. The tapes get mixed up. Chases uh, along, uh, through the metro ensue, along with a bunch of other stuff. It's just very cool. And it's very... It's like, a, it's like the trip to Paris that you couldn't afford. Right. So let's just have 90 minutes of watching Diva instead. That's, that's, that's basically the gist of it. So is it kind of like um, you take your date to a film festival and you pick something that you're not really sure you're going to understand, no, but you're like, this will make me yeah. look, this will make me look smart. Yeah. Do you? I'm I'm sure you uh, enjoyed Police Academy too, their first assignment. But uh, <laughs> let's try for something a little more upmarket, shall we? Let's go watch Diva, and maybe after that, I'll treat you to a plate of escargot. <laughs> well, while we're on the subject of Europe, my next uh, a good date movie uh, to me uh, uh, has that as well as the kind of idealism of uh, of youth. And um, especially now, I look back at this film and I'm filled with such nostalgia. It's Before Sunrise. The, uh, the first of the Before Trilogies, Richard Linklater's Before Trilogies. Um, for those who haven't seen it, uh, Ethan Hawke plays Jesse, a young American who's uh, spending his last 14 hours in, uh, I believe it's in Vienna, or taking a train ride through Europe. Mm. Um, meets a young French girl, Julie Delpy, uh, Celine, and they decide to spend his, the, his remaining 14 hours together in the city of Vienna. Um, watching this film again, I was like, fuck, I miss the 90s so bad. Yeah. Like. The fashion, I loved like his combo of like the co black converse and the black jacket and the grey t-shirt. That was like my uniform. <laughs> <laughs> no mobile phones. Like that's what makes no. this film so kind of romantic is everything that they're doing, they're actually experiencing. They're not taking photos of it. Um, you know, the ending of the film, which is kind of, you know, really heartbreaking and kind of high stakes is mm. because they have to make plans to meet again. So the whole conceit of the film is that they um, – uh, they decide they're going to spend this time together, but they're 
they're just going to concentrate on this time together and they're not going to make any plans, you know, to swap numbers or whatever. Then at the last minute, they realize they've had this amazing time together, but they have to try and work out pre-internet, pre-mobile phones, how they'll see each other again. And so they make a hastily hasty plan for like, we'll, we'll meet again here in 12 months. But then it's like, well, hang on, is it 12 months from 14 hours ago? Or is it 12 months from now? And the train's arriving and stuff. But it is a film that if you've ever done any backpacking, especially if you've gone uh, around Europe, it's like, this is the dream. Like this is what it you really always is. hope to happen is that you'll be alone on a train and you'll meet an attractive stranger and the two of you will hit it off. And you'll just wander the streets, smoking cigarettes, and you know, yeah, going into record for, shops, listening to cool music. Yeah, but, you know, bartering for a bottle of wine. You know, uh, it's just it's such a. This is Linklater when he's at his absolute best. Is it's like it feels like the the dialogue is improvised. Everything just has a languid quality to it. I know there's a lot of people who don't dig on Linklater. I I'm not one of those people. I love his films. Yeah. I just think that when he's in the pocket, it's just like music. Like he's just got such a great way of letting actors do what they want. And um, uh, and, the, and the thing of it is, this is such a great collaboration as well between Linklater, uh, Ethan Hawke, and Julie Delphi as well. I mean, they're yeah. all they're all very much the co-creators of this. Yeah, and I mean, then, there's and actually it, another uh, scriptwriter in, uh, credited on. That's right, if, and if as, not as on the, the trilogy- if not on the other before movies, and certainly on this one. But it re- it. It just feels so organic as a result. Yeah. As the trilogy continues, I think that Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy sort of take a little more ownership. I think they're even nominated for Best Screenplay for. um, Before Sunset? Sunset, yeah. yeah. Or was it. Or maybe it was Midnight. Before Sunrise. Maybe the. Oh, hang on. Is it before Midnight or before Sunrise? Well, the order. Oh, no, so before Sunrise. The order of Sunrise, Sunset, sunset, Midnight. Midnight. It's before Midnight, yeah. Yeah. Um, And those trilogy of films, I think. You know, you could we could have done an entire episode on that because it really is the different stages of dating. This is young love. This is what a holiday romance is like. This mm. is why holiday romances are so intoxicating because there is no consequences. You know, you meet yeah. someone and you know you've only got fourteen hours, and so I, I I've had one of these relationships with a German girl that I met. We had three days together, and it's like you could you can understand why people get married after four days together. Like, oh, absolutely. Just like, there's no time to learn about how anyone's flaws. You're only, you're only giving you, putting your best foot forward. And but then the, obviously yeah. the But the other great the thing bef- about Before Sunrise is, is that uh, they both sort of start off that way, or at least uh, Ethan Hawke's Jesse does. Fun fact, he's actually, the character's name is actually James. Ah, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a lie that he calls himself Jesse. I think maybe it's his nickname. Oh, right, right, yeah. right. But oh. I don't know if I read that or heard it on the commentary or something like that but yeah his, his actual name is james but he goes by jesse oh that's that's a that and that's one of the details that makes the film so yeah. great and then as it goes on so then you'd say the middle before film is more about like if the first one is about young love then the second one is is kind of about like um it's sort of about like uh, emotion like the, it's mm. an emotional one it's about you know the realities and, and moving on and wanting things to connect and, you the know, possibility of a complicated. second chance after you think you've maybe, you know, but it, fucked but it up, has, fucked up but your, your first great romance or your first great love. And you think, Oh, am I ever going to get this right? Can, is there the possibility of getting it right with someone who I thought maybe I had it right the first time with sunset is probably my favorite of the three. Yeah. But sunrise is so good. It's the most complex one too, because mm. it's like that kind of, um, you know, that joyfulness and that um, joy de vie of youth is gone because now there's things at stake and they've both moved on and he's written a book about their experience, which is kind of like she feels a little betrayed about. 
And then Midnight is just like, that's the grounded one. And that's yeah. the one that really hurts. But it's beautiful because they did get together. But this is like, you never see that in a romance film. You yeah. never see what happened to Richard Gere and Julia Roberts after Pretty Woman 20 years <laughs> down the track when they've got kids and they're on a fucking holiday and they're just not getting along. And it's, and it's, I think, I think it's I think it's such a great trilogy, um, but the first one is definitely the romantic one. That is oh, yeah. the one that, and I think for um, people of our vintage sort of Generation X types, it's like, oh, this is just the archetypal. Yeah, and they are both yeah. so likable. Like uh, Delphi yeah. and and Hawk are just like because I can take or leave, especially that era, Ethan Hawk. Like I just mm. sort of, I think maybe. In the 90s, I mean, again, I'm looking back and I'm very affectionate about him, but in the <laughs> 90s, I was like, this man is no spokesman for Generation X. I refer- <laughs> Tear down that effigy. I, 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 this man does not speak for me because they, they were pushing him as that kind of slacker Very icon. much so, yeah. Um, I, but I think before Sunrise is him starting to ease out of that. Yeah, he's getting out of the more mainstream yeah. kind of roles and really exploring, him, exploring himself as an artist. The other thing I would say about this film is it has one of the most – Again, it's rich, Richard Linklater's simplicity is just uh, the, the just before the credits is you revisit all the locations that we saw Jesse and mm-hmm. Celine in, but the frame is empty. Yeah. And it's such a beautiful, um, sad, but hopeful way yeah. to end a film where it's like, you know, you've just been on this beautiful 90-minute romance with these, these young lovers. But now, like, the city seems different now that they're not in it, you know? Yeah. Like, you take love away and it's just a train station. It's just a <laughs> river. And it's just – it's such a brilliant film. I love it. Yeah. All right. Should we get back into the shit ones? We shall indeed. Uh, <laughs> shall I go first or will you? Yeah, you go first. <laughs> I was thinking about filmmakers who are not necessarily good bets for a first date movie. <laughs> I think Fincher is definitely one of them. I think if you look through his body of work, there's not really much stuff there that says – cosy date night you know netflix and chill movie even something like gone girl you know, um i think you come away from that going you're sort of side-eyeing your partner can i can i trust you yeah, <laughs> yeah or you know girl with the dragon tattoo it's like based on a bestseller everyone knows the girl with the dragon tattoo but then you look and it's like oh my god this is just full of you know just, terrible violence towards women and serial yeah. killings and all this kind of business even build girl with a dragon tattoo was like the feel bad movie of the season. <laughs> like, yeah, even Zodiac, were... like it's got that scene by the lake, you know, with the with that couple. Like yeah. you're right, Finch is really bad for dates. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I think David Lynch might be one of those guys as well. I mean, these are all yeah. filmmakers I really really love, uh, but I think maybe the heavyweight champ of bad date movies might be um, Darren Aronofsky, and he's a guy oh, yeah. I really really dig, but no one, no one. <laughs> on God's green earth in the history of time has ever said, hey, honey, let's sit down and watch Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> <laughs> if, if there is a couple like that, by all means, yeah, write in. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to pick your weird brains. Yeah, um, yeah it's, or- a great, it's, a, it's a great double feature to watch uh, Charming Jennifer Connelly in, in Labyrinth and then, <laughs> oh, my God, what happened? <laughs> or, you know, The Wrestler. It's like, oh, yeah. remember the glory days of Mickey Rourke? Mm, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And there's, there's, I don't know if it's the most recent movie, <clears throat> but it, it may well be called Mother with Jennifer Lawrence and uh, Javier oh, Bardem. Date, they were dating at the time, I believe. Is that right? Ar- Aronofsky and, uh, yeah. and J-Law, I believe so. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, it seems like the kind of intense experience that creates intense relationships. Because, mm. yeah, this movie, which 
I don't know, interpretations of this one really vary. You know, is it a metaphor for global warming? Is it a a weird re you know reworking of the Bible? Is it just the worst you know relationship saga ever? Uh, you know, what is it? I mean, you can spend a lot of time analysing it. And, you know, you may well have a partner who is down to do that. But this movie gets so intense and so sort of cruel. Mm. in, uh, And it builds up, builds, 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 builds to, uh, you know, scenes of absolute sort of carnage and despair uh, that you kind of walk out of it again, like walking out of Seven going, oh, man, really? <laughs> you yeah. know, is the world worth fighting for, Morgan Freeman? I'm not sure. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I would not recommend a Darren Aronofsky movie, and maybe not a first date movie, maybe like a fourth or fifth date movie. If you've you've come to sort of realise, wow, my partner's as weird and twisted as I am. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's go check out Pie or um, or Noah, starring Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly. I don't think I've actually spoken to anyone who's enjoyed Mother, and I think that's kind of maybe the point. You're right. I've read yeah. all those theories as well you know is she mother earth you know what is the what is the message of the film but if it's the film is exploitation and abuse (laughs) that's not really something i want to tick it on i uh I had just a little side note i've actually met darren aronofsky i met him at um i had a short film at at tribeca film festival and was this the wake this is the wake and uh he was being given uh one of those kind of awards that you get at festivals you know like a, a, a lifetime achievement award service to film or something like that and he's probably he like four up, films into his career at this stage or something yeah he got up and made a speech um that seemed to be this like just went on these all these non sequiturs it was it was like almost imperceptible like what it wasn't an acceptance speech. He just told the story and the story centered around him growing up in the Midwest or something, or, or at least, you know, spending time in the Midwest as a child and having to help farmers birth calves, you know, working on this dairy okay. farm. And it went on and on. And he told this story and then he was just saying, you know, and that I'd reach into, you know, the birth canal of the cow and I'd draw the calf out and I'd be covered in blood and shit and, and amniotic fluid and, um, and, you know, so thank you for this award. And then he just walked off stage and I was like, did that motherfucker come down here just to like <laughs> flip the middle finger to these people who wanted to give him an award? So I didn't want to think that because I liked his films, but I saw him at the bar and I was like, well, I'll just go over and just, you know, because I love The Wrestler. I'm a big pro wrestling fan and I just thought it was such a great film. And so I went over and wasn't wasn't like an annoying fan. I just sort of waited for opportunity and said, hi, just wanted to say – Love the wrestler. I love that you revitalized Rick, Mickey's career. And, you know, I'm a big pro wrestling fan. I think you, you know, you, you told such an honest story. And he just stared at me, stared at me like I was an insect. And he was like, is that all? <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. Okay, you asshole. I'm out of here. It was such an unpleasant experience. So oh, no. Since then, I'm like, fuck Darren Aronofsky and fuck his films. So when a film like that comes out, I'm like, yeah, he's just a prick. Oh, Charlie, I'm so sorry to hear that, man. Oh, ah, nah, that's fine. I'm sure, I'm sure he's having a bad night. It's all in good fun. Maybe, I don't hold look, it against you, Daz. Yeah, look, I, I, I admire the guy's chops as a filmmaker, absolutely. But yeah, he does come across like a pretentious douche at times. <laughs> uh, speaking of pretentious, uh, my next bad film is actually a director that I loved his early canon and have grown increasingly uh, uh, less fond of, which is Tim Burton. Um, The film is Big Fish, Mm. which, uh, again, 
I, I don't really – I went online just to sort of, you know, see what – take the temperature of the internet. And it seems to be one of these films which people are fairly divided on. It's either the most beautiful, you know, heartwarming uh, film of all time or it's just a, a complete mess. I tend to agree with the latter, that I think it's a bit of a mess. Yeah. Um, but my personal story on this <laughs> is that uh, Gemma, my wife, uh, it was our one of our first dates and we were both huge Tim Burton fans um, – uh, and so we're quite excited to see this. Tim Burton branching out, trying to do something a bit more personal mm. and adult. So uh, the plot is about uh, a, an estranged son trying to reconnect with his father, Edward Bloom, who is a noted storyteller. And uh, like all Tim Burton films, or there's many flights of fancy as, you know, Edward recounts his, his life and the son is trying to pick the truth from the fiction, blah, 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 blah. Um, I can see what Burton was going for, but I, I feel like, Whatever his awkwardness is as this kind of emo, king emo, he has a hard time being really honest and expressing human yeah. emotions. Nothing ever feels real. He, can, he builds incredible imaginative worlds and he you know, creates memorable images and scenes, but I never feel anything. In fact, the yeah. only scene where I've really felt emotional, oddly enough, is Batman Returns when the penguin <laughs> dies. For some reason, well, that really yeah, that yeah. really gets me. I don't know what it is. I find it really moving. I think the funny thing about Burton is I think he can be very, very honest the more artificial he's been. Right. I think some, like Edward something like Edward Scissorhands or, yeah. or Batman Returns or even going back to Pee Wee's Big Adventure or something like that. I think there's... There's real emotion, real human emotion in a lot of those things. But, you know, it's guys in bat suits and women in cat suits. Or it's, you know, a weird outsider with scissors for hands or whatever. But, yeah. And he empathises and sympathises and identifies with those people so much that that's where the real... Emotion comes yeah, in. Yeah, but yeah. But when he right. tries to sort of do it in a more recognisably, quote-unquote, human way, like in Big Fish, yeah. even with its flights of fancy... Yeah, it, it plays a little sort of false or stilted or wrong. Having said that, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to no, no, your story and, ha- and how you managed to stay with <laughs> with your wife despite this bad first date. But the, the, the closing scene of Big Fish, the, where the son sort of becomes a storyteller in the vein of his father mm. and is you know telling him the, la- the story of his life or the, the story of his death, essentially. Mm. It's so beautiful. It's so lovely. And I mean... I just find that occasional on YouTube and just watch it and even, yeah, 30 seconds into it, I'm like, that's so nice. Wow, (laughs) funny funny you should mention that, Guy, (laughs) because (laughs) so we're watching the film and we're both kind of feeling, you know, fairly ambivalent about it and then it gets to that scene. Now, I'm someone who uh, lost his father when he was quite young, so I'm a bit of a sucker for father-son stories. Uh, but Billy Crotter, as you said, starts telling Edward Bloom the story of his life and as he's carrying him down to the lake. And as it's happening, I feel, you know, <laughs> that kind of when you've been you, suppressing You feel, you feel a spider crawling up your leg? <laughs> it wasn't a spider crawling up my leg. It was in like 25 years of suppressed emotion yeah. like building up from my gut. And it sort of started where it's like, it was almost like being over, like I was going to faint. Like it was just an overwhelming wave of emotion where my throat went super tight and I could feel my my eyes starting to sting. And I'm like, 
fuck, dude, don't cry. Yeah. And I'm like, just fucking hold it together. And like, you know, he's running in down the lake and everyone's waving goodbye and Jessica Lang's waiting for yeah. him. And he's so happy he's accepting his own death. And he, I'm like, I'm even getting choked up yeah. now thinking about it. And he transforms into a fish and swims off. So then... Obviously, Eddie Vedder's Man of the Hour starts playing, oh. and I'm like gripping the seat, like just biting my bottom lip. And so the credits start rolling, and so I just sort of like in a very strained voice just whisper to Jen, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. And so I race out of the cinema, I go to the cubicles, and I shut the door, and I fucking burst into tears. And I'm like, I try, I try and cry as hard as I can because I'm like, if I could just get it all out. So I just like, just power it out, you know. So I just cry, 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 cry. Get some toilet paper, wipe my face, look in the mirror, try and just sort of cool my face down. Like my eyes are looking really red and shit. So I compose myself and go back into the foyer where Jem's waiting. And, uh, you know, we, we um, make our way down the cinema and we hail a cab off the street and we're just sort of chit-chatting and we're just sort of like, oh, you know, it was kind of a bit of a hit and a miss and there were some things that worked and things that didn't work. And then we get into the back of the cab and Jem <laughs> says, what did you think of that last scene? And then I just went, burst into tears again. Mind you, this is like our first date mm. and I was inconsolable. It was a 15-minute ride back to my apartment and I cried the whole mm. way. Like the whole way. And I'm not just talking like like, <laughs> like sobbing, like, <laughs> like almost hysterical <laughs> to the point where we got to my apartment and Jem's like, ah, you know, I've got some friends who are uh, having a drink at the pub. Why don't I go meet them? And when you're feeling okay, you, you come meet us. And I'm like, yeah, Aww. that's a good idea. <laughs> I literally go into my apartment, shut the door, start crying again have to call my brother to say, dude, you've got to fucking like talk me down. I'm on a date. I can't stop crying. And it was like literally, it was like a 20 minute ordeal where I just was like, what the fuck? And it was just, it completely blindsided me. It happens mm -hmm. from time to time when you watch a film where I know we've mentioned Conair earlier. That is like in no way an emotional film, but there's something about when uh, Nicholas Cage hands his daughter her punny at the end. It always <laughs> fucking gets me. But this is just like it's 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 become legend in our household about like how I almost fucking scuppered a twenty year relationship because of Tim Burton's let's say mediocre yeah, film, mid level. <laughs> not Tim even Burton. one of his. Well, not even one of his good ones. But th thankfully, I'm glad you brought it up because clearly. That scene works because you it brought really, it up yeah. and everyone online, that's when you read the comments under YouTube and stuff, everyone talks about, oh, that scene is a real, he's, that's a real tear. He stuck the landing at least. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, it, but it's, it's always awkward when you've got moments like that. I mean, I remember seeing Dead Poet Society with a girl <laughs> that I had this massive crush on and, I, you know, I certainly wasn't expecting by the, I thought, oh, wow, this is a, you know, very touching movie, and you know, I'm, I'm really empathising with Ethan Hawke here. Wow, you know, he's, um, I'm a, I was a bit of a, you know, shy kid who wanted to be a writer, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> then, finally, musters up the courage, stands on the desk, go, oh, Captain, my cap. <laughs> I can't let this girl see me become a complete wreck. <laughs> but cut to many, many years later, and um, I'm about, oh, I think I'm maybe. Two and a bit years into my relationship with uh, with Louise, with, with with my with my current girlfriend, and we're watching The Crown. We're making our way through The Crown, yeah. and Prince Charles has sort of become. A, I think he's he's gone to Wales. I don't know if you watch The Crown, or but he's gone to Wales to sort of because he's the Prince of Wales, and he he's studying in the university there, learning Welsh 
because it's sort of incumbent upon him to do so. And everyone's treating him like a bit of a joke, and he's kind of treating it like a bit of a joke as well. But one, and you know, his parents don't like it, and the Queen can't really stand him. And one tutor actually sort of treats him with respect and a, and a grudging sort of affection. And I, at some stage, just is nice to him, like a, just a small bit of human kindness. And I just lost it. I completely <laughs> lost it. And then I'm a... I'm the kind of person who cries at the drop of a hat at movies, but I, I managed to keep it together in front of Louise for two, 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 two something years, and it all came out in a gush. That's what this one. <laughs> not like it's so beautiful. He's not a monster. <laughs> Someone's finally been nice to him. <laughs> and Louise looking at me like, "You okay?" Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. It's it's um. It can be a bonding experience or a detaching experience. That kind yeah, of thing. I think when you're both crying, it's fine. But when one of you is blubbering, the other one's just giving you the side eye. That's yeah, like, you, uh, you kind of have to explain your baggage at that stage. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, let's get into the final two movies. Our final two good date movies. Mm. Uh, you kick things off. Yes, indeed. With uh, I, I started with that uh, Tarantino line earlier about, well, you know, we're going to watch so-and-so, and if this relationship is going to have any kind of legs, you'd better like this. Quentin Tarantino is not really one someone should look to for romantic advice, but if I'm starting a relationship, invariably we're going to watch Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight. Yes. <laughs> and, and you'd better enjoy it. because Yeah. yeah. But why wouldn't you enjoy yep. it? Because it is probably... It's up there with the best adaptations of the great crime writer Elmore Leonard. It's up there with Get Shorty and uh, Tarantino's Jackie Brown. But I think it's probably the best of them. It's incredible chemistry between George Clooney and, and, and Jennifer Lopez, both just looking primo so movie stars. They are so hot. Yeah. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, the screen <laughs> should burst into flames. Oh, God, yeah. When you watch this, they are both, they're just, they're, yeah, you're right. It's like the epitome of movie star. And just so, it's kind of like... Whatever you find sexy, you'll find an element of it yeah. in both of their performances. Like you know, whether it's, it's just, just supreme confidence or self-deprecating yeah. wit, or just yeah. two, Action, two two people toughness. who are made for each other, but you know, maybe not right for one another. It just works on all levels and fires on all cylinders. I just I cannot say enough about Out of Sight. It, it is uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, but also just a great litmus test for. This is kind of what I'm into. It's it's what I'm like. It's what I like. It's what I aspire to be like. So, yeah. um, and I'm probably going to watch it maybe once a year. So it'd be nice if we could do it together. Yeah, I don't think, I, I don't think, male or female, straight or gay, you can walk away from this film without feeling some kind of movement. <laughs> like whatever you're into, <laughs> it just it just reeks of sexiness and kind of not not that sort of like forced. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, hey, we've got two hot people, aren't yeah. they hot? It's actually, like you were saying, it's every element, the cinematography, the lighting, the mm. costuming, the way the action stage, their, you know, their banter. It's almost like, you know, Hepburn yeah. Tracy in, in a way. Like everything about it is just sexy. Like it's just yeah. like, I guess I guess you're, you, you said confidence earlier and I think that's what it is. It's a really confident film yeah. and confidence is really sexy. It's not forced. Like there is no – they're just two beautiful people. That's a given. But it's the way that the characters they inhabit the characters and the way they yeah. hold themselves. Yeah, you know? like and I mean, it's not and, a no, and, and no, they 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 want each other, but they're not going to show that they want each other. You know what I mean? 
mean, there's just yeah. this kind of dance going on. And neither of them is perfect. I mean, they're both kind of flawed in their own ways. Yeah. I mean, you know, Jennifer Lopez is this federal marshal who nonetheless is seeing your man Michael Keaton, who's, you know, says he's divorced but is not really. So, you know, she's clearly got a bit of a checkered history with men or, you know, maybe bad taste in, in partners. And, you know, Clooney mm. is this bank robber who can't seem to get out of his own way and is not mm. not quite as smart as he thinks he is, but at the same time he's also smart enough to realise he's not that smart. It's yeah. one of my favourite bits is where Clooney's broken out of prison, he's taken uh, J-Lo hostage, they're in the trunk of the car while Ving Rhames mm. is driving. Very and sexy. It, yeah, and he's <laughs> instantly sort of launched into this banter, into this conversation, and she says something like, oh, you're a real Clyde Barrow, huh? And he goes, yeah, <laughs> beat, beat. You mean like Bonnie and Clyde, right? It took him a sec, but he got there. (laughs) Or he misquotes Network or something. So he's he's smart, but just not that smart. And he knows it. And he's, but he's also comfortable with it. And he's it's it's yeah, it's fantastic, Clooney. It's fantastic, J Lo. It's fantastic, uh, Soderbergh. Out of sight. It's out of sight. What can I tell you? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. When you Thank you. I'm Jing Shallot at the movies. <laughs> when you said that to her, I think I even said to you, yep, yeah, you've picked it. That is the ultimate date movie. Like <laughs> if we had to pick one winner out of these 10 suggestions, then that one is is right at the top. I've taken a different approach uh, with my last film. And there was – I had a couple other sort of honourable mentions. I thought like Romeo and Juliet. I remember when I was coming mm. – at university, that was the film that every girl yeah. wanted to see. Leo – prime Leo, you know, as shot by Baz Luhrmann, could not be more, you know, hot to a teenage girl. And if you could somehow, you know, take some of that sheen off Leo (laughs) and put it on yourself, then maybe, maybe you'd get some action. Um, But who's who's not hot in that movie, by the way? I mean, Luhrmann just shoots everybody... So beautifully. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. John Leguizamo is probably more comic relief. I don't think I he's guess. on either. No, when in but that he's kind of scene where he's, he's kind of a weirdly volatile, kind of, sexy hot. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. I mean, yeah, like Harold, Harold Perrin, uh, Harold Perrino as Mercutio mm. is just incredible. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. In, even Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd's in that. That's right. You forget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's sort of done up like a um, like a young Kennedy. That's he's right. Like a, he's like JFK Junior or something. Yeah, so. Uh, so the film I decided to go with sort of is more um, concurrent with where I'm at at my stage of life. It's uh, a Blue Valentine um, starring uh, Ryan uh, Gosling and Michelle Williams. It's a story of Dean and Cindy, which is sort of told in parallel. So what you're getting is the story of how Dean and Cindy came together. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, you're seeing the story of them 10 years later and how their relationship is falling apart. Mm-hmm. Now... It's not a date movie in the sense that you come out of it like just all loved up like The Notebook or anything. Yeah. If anything, it's the opposite yeah. of The Notebook. If, <laughs> if Ryan Gosling, uh, I don't know if it's a conscious choice, but you know, it, it's sort of almost like the anti-romance film. Well, what it is to me is it's if all romantic movies are about potential or promise, like the potential of true love to conquer, the potential for you to have a soulmate. Like, you know, every romantic film ends with a couple together and then you can imagine, you know, the amazing life they go on to. This film is saying, hey, <laughs> here's what happens yeah. 10 years later. They can't, they, they can't all be winners. <laughs> yeah, uh, once you're young and hot. And and it, it's just, um, I think as a married man now who has a child and stuff, like it's a really great cautionary tale <laughs> because – you know, it is all easy when you're young and you don't have responsibility and stuff and, you know, you're, you're thinner and you've got more hair and all those things are going for you. And 
I think it's a it's a great way to recognize that it's not meant to stay that way. Yeah. You know, the idea that you're going to be like, you know, uh, doing cute little dances to ukulele playing <laughs> uh, is insane. And that, you know, what you've got to work on is other things in your relationship. You've got to build more. And, you know, it's just got so many um, great moments uh, like uh, – uh, you know, the, the ukulele scene where they're, this is young Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling where, you know, she shows her hidden talent, which is dancing, and he plays ukulele. And it's got a Linklater vibe and it feels completely improvised and unrehearsed and it's so endearing and beautiful. But then on the flip side of that, you know, they go away for a weekend to sort of, you know, rekindle their marriage. And they book themselves into this horrible, cheesy, space-themed, like, <laughs> sex motel. But they have this conversation about potential. You know, and if I was going to side with anyone in this relationship, it's Michelle Williams. You know, I'm talking about the married couple version of Dean and Cindy because, you know, she's a nurse and she's just trying to make ends meet and she just wants her husband to be the man she thought he was going to be when he was charming and, and, you know, he's so good at so many things. And you just see in this amazing performance and clearly – Ryan Gosling is not an actor who's driven by vanity because the way he looks in this film, you know, the, 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 you know, shaving his hair into the receding hairline and putting on the weight and stuff. And the performance is so unlikable. Okay. He's so selfish. And they're having this talk about potential. And she's like, why don't, you know, you're so good at so many things. Why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? And he's like, because I love that I've got a job where I can, you know, have a beer at eight in the morning. And, you know, that's what I want. And she's like, but that's not what you want. That's what you're settling for. And it's this real adult conversation about, are you going to, is this going to be your life? And if this is going to be your life, then we have to have a talk about yeah. how I fit into that because I want more than that. And I think that that is the danger of like relationships is you've either got to grow together or yeah. you've got to grow apart. And it's a real horrible, hard truth. And I know this is probably not sounding like a date movie, but A, the young versions themselves are so beautiful. Yeah. It's such a kind of like, it stirs up such kind of nostalgia for your own youth. And it looks beautiful. Like it's one of the, the most beautifully shot kind of films where even though it's very real and grounded, it's very, a lot of handheld, that kind of stuff. It just makes it, I, I, I describe it as a gritty beauty. Mm-hmm. Things feel real, but they feel beautiful. Even when things are falling apart, you're like, God, that desaturated palette is amazing. <laughs> now I must admit to being a complete coward, Charlie, because I've, had this on my to watch list for a, a very very right. long time and i've never watched blue valentine I'm just like i don't know if my heart can take it <laughs> i mean um it the way you're describing it i mean i've read a bit about it and it does sound like something that i'm gearing myself up to see it sounds very much like before midnight in a lot of regards in terms of, in, ter- yeah. in terms of its honesty and um it's sort of unflinching look at it, yeah, a relationship has to evolve. Adults. It has to move forward. You can't live in the honeymoon. Yeah. And it's it's it's, it's also just that um, it's got this – because you – once you realize that you're watching a story being told in parallel, so, yeah. you know, you realize you're watching them come together while they're falling apart, there's in a sense of inevitability yeah. about it. And that ordinarily, I think, would make a film kind of like hard to watch because you like, just get to the end. But the acting is so brilliant. Mm. And I think that there really is – look, from what I understand, people side with either Ryan Gosling or Michelle Williams in yeah. when it comes to analysing this film. <laughs> you know, either, you know, she's a nag or, you know, he's a fuck-up. Like I said, I side with her. But they both have such humanity. And you yeah. can understand 
how they've both arrived at where they're at. You know, it's really, they do a great job of making every character sympathetic. And even though I'm team Williams all the way, <laughs> I do understand how Ryan Gosling got to where he is, you know, and like they go into sort of explain the, the upbringing he had and the lack of love he received. And, you know, he never really wanted to be a dad or have a family, but now he has it. He's doing the best he yeah. can. And that's kind of the heartbreaking nature of it is he's doing the best he can, but his best is not good, good enough, enough guy. Mm, <laughs> so stay in that fucking relationship and everyone work really hard because you can't just rest on your laurels. You can't, you know, rest on the love you had 20 years ago. You got to keep fucking putting in the hours. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Don't break up people. Keep those marriages together. Sounding like Jordan Peterson now, aren't I? Just some kind of <laughs> just campaigning for, uh, for marriage. <laughs> for monogamy. Did you realize yeah. that Ryan Gosling has, hasn't made a movie in five years? No, I hadn't noticed that. But I, I've had a kid in three of those years, so I haven't seen any fucking movies. So that makes sense to me. I just, yeah, someone said that the other day. I mean, because uh, I think Netflix released, like, released some... Here's our 2022 slate, and Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans are in some action movie together. Yeah, and right. So, that's the first movie he's done in like five years. He made First Man, that movie first where he Man. played Neil Armstrong, which is really good. Yeah, really good um, film. Yeah, but he's been he's taken time off since then. I think he's actually been raising the kids that he has with Eva Mendes. So clearly, he wow. took a lesson from Blue Valentines. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all right, that is our date movie episode, guy. Thank you so much for coming back on Fofop. It's always a pleasure. Charlie, learn so much. Thank I'm you have very to go much check for out me. I'm going to have to check out Diva. I have to dig my black skivvy out of, out of the wardrobe. Not a lot of call for skivvies up here in the Northern Rivers. If I can wear it with shorts and thongs, then uh, maybe I'll get away with it. I will gird my courage and watch Blue Valentine. Oh, you should. I think I, I, I honestly think it's it, it's totally worth it. It's it maybe see it when you, you you're feeling emotionally stable. <laughs> I don't think you should see it more and more infrequent. Feeling- <laughs> okay, <laughs> then maybe you'll never get to see it. Uh, but we'll have you back on. We'll discuss another topic that I'll steal from you <laughs> and take credit for. Uh, let's plug your podcast, uh, Four Finger Discount. Four, the Four Finger Discount Network, uh, home for all your 90s nostalgia needs like The Simpsons, Seinfeld, South Park, doing a show on Futurama now. So by all means, tune in if my voice has not been like grating your eardrums on this particular episode. <laughs> And I'll put a link in the episode description. But for now, I'm Charlie Clawson. I'm Guy Davis.